Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the debut grand opening of Mad Villain Bistro Bed and Breakfast Bar Grill Cafe Lounge on the Water, where we offer you the finest and the finer things. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Terry Talks Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Terry. I'm Ryan Terry. And I'm Clayton Terry. Today, the three of us will be discussing what we believe to be the greatest sci-fi film of all time. We've each come with two films, and we will argue our position as to why the films we've brought have had the greatest impact on not only the sci-fi genre, but film as a whole. Um, I believe we will be starting with Ryan, so if you want to take it away with your first movie. So, for this discussion, the first movie I've chosen is uh, Children of Men, the Alfonso Cuaron film from uh, 2006. That is about uh, the in a dis- in a near future, 27 years, I believe, where um, for 27 years, all women on Earth have been infertile. Uh, the main character, Theo, has to transport the... Um, first female uh the first pregnant female in 27 years to a humane um project humanity project to keep her and the child safe and one of the things that i find so strong about this entry is that it uh it sci-fi needs to reflect our world in some way i believe in order to um give a uh worthwhile commentary on the nature of human beings or the nature of society and I think Children of Men does this perfectly. It has a great undertone of um, immigration, because that's a big issue, because England is the only country that is still stable. And um, it shows multiple sides of where, like, throughout the whole movie, there's this symbolism of animals, where it's like the higher, because every almost every scene has, or almost every shot even, has an animal in it where it's a um, dog, a uh, pig, or sheep, and they all represent the different tiers of society. And uh, the pig is like the high-up high, high up, um, elite. The sheep are the normal people, and the dogs are the resistance fighters towards the government. And um, it's a very realistic and, like, depressing depiction of society because it's not like the world just ended. It's not like Mad Max or uh, any other similar dystopian film. Because it's slowly dying and we get to watch it die. Or we get we get to see it in the middle process of it dying. And it's really compelling and interesting to see that. And it's just, it's uh, has so many layers on that level, symbolically. So this was directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who's... Um, loved by us and then obviously the academy and many film lovers do you think his style of filmmaking worked really well in the sci-fi genre and specifically with this film because i know we're looking at a lot of long takes a lot of uh, very precise camera movements the thing that makes alfonso Cuarón's directing style so special is that it shot like a documentary yeah it's shot like you're in the lives of these people and the camera has a mind of its own and it just observes like the way that Dio will walk a certain direction and the camera will go an opposite direction to view the world around it to give us a better idea mm-hmm. was it also kind of implies that this is normal to Theo 
but like it's new to us so they want us to see it and it gives the it very much gives this realistic depiction of a science fiction world which sometimes you don't necessarily get Mm -hmm. um with sci-fi since it can be so uh, broad but that is what i find very compelling and the sci-fi elements aren't as prominent as some of the other films we'll talk about um but it certainly embodies what science fiction is about which is i believe reflecting onto our world and alfonso Cuarón's directing style does that very well by making it seem like our world yeah i think the most interesting thing about science fiction movies and just like literature or anything in general is that like if i forget that it's a dystopian future or it's like this post-apocalyptic future in the case of children of men that's always more interesting to me like it's always like it's so relatable that i forget so like always just doing his uh what's the main character name theo theo doing mm-hmm. his what he does every day just doing his routine and then in the background you'll see a billboard that's obviously nowhere like that wouldn't exist today mm-hmm. or the scene with the kid who has the just like some weird rubik's cube looking thing but it's mm-hmm. like the science fi thing it's just such a little element that doesn't have to be there but uh, Alfonso Cuaron decides to put it in there and it makes the story more interesting. It makes the world more compelling. Mm-hmm. There are tons of great uh, Jesus allusions too. Or not oh, even yeah. just Jesus allusions, sorry, but just allusions in general. Yeah, but in the case of Jesus, like Theo's never wearing shoes. <laughs> really? That's I didn't a, pick up yeah. on that. Oh yeah, you don't mm-hmm. realize that one. Yeah. yeah. He's wow. never wearing shoes. Finally, yeah. the girl hands him shoes and he like smiles. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, the other is uh, the Pink Floyd animals album cover which also has the same like each song of animals is named after dog pig or sheep and it represents that aspect in society okay and um the the arc of the arts that uh his cousin i think uh uh someone in his family uh runs is the uh is modeled off that album cover and there's tons of different art allusions too Mm -hmm. if i was more cultured in art i would be able to tell you them right now but they're uh it's just it's a very it's a very deep movie like it's there's a lot of depth to it and that's what i really appreciate about it a lot of subtleties Mm -hmm. yeah i mean definitely like you were talking about um it's not as sci-fi but the most important elements of the science fiction genre are there like the reason we'll be talking about aliens i don't know if they'll come up but um androids and whatnot the typical elements of sci-fi but the point of those is to tell us about humanity. And this film does that through the world that it exists in um, by modeling it in basically the world we're used to, but just a little bit different. Um, I really love this movie. This is the one we've watched semi-recently. I think it's some of the best directing I've seen in my mm-hmm. life as a film lover. Yeah, I think it's the greatest movie on our list, but I don't know if it's the greatest sci-fi movie. Continue. yeah yeah no i could see that like i mean everyone would probably think of the long take when they're in the car oh yeah um, yeah or at the end or the long take at the end. or at the yeah, end yeah that's fantastic uh without yeah I, I i love everything about this movie it's so good <laughs> any other notes you want to say for children and men um well uh another thing about it is its story is fairly simple yeah but it's told in such a compelling way like, it's so simple that, like, it got ripped off by Last of Us. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen this story a hundred times. Uh-huh. Yeah. The Children of Men blows even all of them. Like, I love Logan, and I like The Walking Dead. Last of Us as well. Yeah, but like, I like all of those. But I think Children of Men is by far the greatest version of this, like, 
storytelling, kind mm-hmm. of like chosen one storytelling. Yeah. And it's also like, it's interesting because the, um, the quote unquote chosen one, it's, it's fun in a way that it's not, uh, cause I, I kind of hate it. Don't like narratives like that that much, but it, it's fun as a way of like, this is a symbol of hope. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that. Maybe it's definitely different for children and men than it would be for something like, um, I don't know, Star Wars, the prequels. <laughs> well, yeah. I like it when the chosen one isn't our main character. Yeah, like, me too. Yeah. The main character is just an everyday guy who happened to find himself in this situation, mainly because of his ex-wife. Yeah. The chosen one is like a side character who mm-hmm. like it listed very lowly on IMDb now that I'm looking at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a shame. And that I can buy it more so because like I wouldn't be Luke Skywalker, but like I could be Han Solo. I could be yeah. like his friend <laughs> that he just bumps into like the everyday person. You know what I mean? Also, the acting is fantastic. Oh, yeah, I don't definitely. think I mentioned that, but um, Clive Owen, uh, Julian Moore, Julian Moore, Michael Caine, yeah, s- steals Moreau the show when Doctor he's Strange. on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Shai would tell Ela Julia for E Julia for. I would say his name wrong, but he's an incredible actor. Mm-hmm. Any other quick notes with Children of Men? Uh, it's hard not to say. It's hard to say anything without spoiling it. It's yeah, on Netflix I, right I now. Really love it. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, go watch it. Yeah, watch it. The posters are uh, are bad, but the, yeah, tra- the trailer's horrible as well. Is it? Yeah. Movies, fantastic. One of the best movies I think ever made. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, if you're also with Children of Men, I'm going to move into my first entry, and that is the objectively best sci-fi movie, 1982's Blade Runner. This was <laughs> this was directed by Ridley Scott, um, based on Philip K. Dick's novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, very loosely based. Um, just a quick plot summary. I'm sure most people are familiar with this movie, but set in dystopian 2019 Los Angeles, Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is a Blade Runner tasked with hunting down rogue replicants. Replicant, of course, refers to the androids in this film. Um, just kind of setting the stage for how this was received. Uh, it was nominated for two Oscars. Um, critically, it was kind of divisive, and it famously underperformed, grossing only $27 million dollars. Um, that's unadjusted and I don't have the budget off the top of my head, but it was around that, if not more. So, um, definitely underperformed as a film. I saw this movie in late high school, I think. And it's a slow burn movie. You watch it the first time and, um, it's not the most exciting film I've ever seen, but it had some of the most interesting visuals. The car going around the city with all the coca-cola billboards the different gadgets they have the tests they do with the eye i forget the name of it that seems like something you would know off the top of your head i, I do not i think it's the, the uh isn't it the tyrell test because isn't it the company yeah well it's the tyrell corporation uh, but and uh which version did you watch first time by yes the yeah so that was That's an a actual point. a point i wanted to make the first okay. time i watched the wrong one <laughs> i think it was the, the theatrical yeah we watched the theatrical cut um for those for people who haven't seen it, there's like seven different cuts. And if you're going to watch it, I would recommend the final cut. Um, this has the this has widely seen as the best ending. Um, and this is the only version Ridley Scott had the most control over. And then on top of that, they fixed some of the visual effects. I mean, there's not much to fix. The movie looks pretty incredible oh, and yeah. it always has. But um, I think this sci-fi movie is the greatest sci-fi movie ever made because... Not only is it immensely influential, which I'll get into, but every element 
is just so perfectly done. Um, you think about the score and how well that captures the electric feeling, that feeling of artificiality. I don't know like if that's synth. Yeah, the synth, the retro sound. Um, Harrison Ford gives a performance that's very removed. I mean, um, there's always conspiracy theories about is he really who we think he is in terms of is he human? Is he replicant? Is he evil? Is he good? Like, how are we supposed to view this person? And that is captured very well, not only in Harrison Ford's performance, which he does very dry, um, but also in Ridley Scott's directing and the way he frames his characters, the way he asks you to empathize with the replicants over um, Deckard based on the way he shoots the film. The writing is incredible. Again, it's not a particularly complex story, a cop hunting down rogue robots basically it's a noir film yeah it's a noir sci-fi movie and i think some of those noir elements are what make it really strong actually um because you have that the classic shots of like the smoking against the blinds you have the femme fatale in um rachel i believe is her name Mm -hmm. um but then besides the fact that just works incredibly well as a movie this film has been more influential than almost any other movie um especially any other non-big blockbuster film um so you think what this had an influence on the most obvious example for me is ghost in the shell which Mm -hmm. um i like the anime i'm not crazy about it um but everything that was able to accomplish visually i think it took from blade runner um not in like a bad way just like repurposing art and putting your own spin on it we have Battlestar galactica in terms of shows that look um, and feel very much like Blade Runner. That's not something I've gotten into, but it's very widely seen that that is influential, um, that Blade Runner was influential in Battlestar. And then a popular recent film was Ex Machina with the whole idea of humanity being looked through the lens of an android and someone who isn't technically considered human by society, where they're surrounded by characters that are incredibly inhuman. Um, and I mean, the list goes on. You can look at films that came out before and after Blade Runner, and you can see the impact it had on the visual styles of these films, even though, like we talked about, it didn't leave that much of an imprint in terms of box office or Oscar performance. For a while, every single futuristic futuristic, sorry, uh, city looked like Blade Runner. Yeah, definitely. Star, Star Wars, funnily enough, the prequels, they're emulating Blade Runner. Uh, yeah. Fifth Element, I think. Yeah, Fifth Fifth Um, Element is a great example. uh, And just the whole like cyberpunk genre with uh, Mm -hmm. William Gibson and the board game and everything had a huge influence on science fiction and what um, science fiction looks like and feels like. Yeah, definitely. I think some of the movies that we're going to talk about today and some that are in our honorable mentions and some of the ones I just mentioned, um, they wouldn't exist without Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. Like the impact it had on film is in my opinion parallel to the impact jaws had on the summer movie idea the impact lord of the rings has had on cgi like this is one of those monumental films that has changed the way films look today yeah and i think it's themes like i think when it comes to science fiction movies i think the theme of what makes us human Mm -hmm. is probably the strongest one we see it repeat over and over again like most recently like watching westworld and yeah definitely other 
media along those lines. I think, yeah, I think out of all the movies we brought today, I think Blade Runner really pushes into that theme. And I think thematically it's the strongest when it comes to science fiction storytelling. I will say uh, I'm a bigger fan of Blade Runner 2049. Blade Runner 2049 was my favorite movie of 2017. And um, I just, I just, the movie connected with me more. That just might be me. I thought I wanted to address the elephant in the room. So. The elephant in the room is the yeah. sequel. The sequel. <laughs> um, I love the sequel. It was, I don't think it was my favorite movie of that year, but it was top three. I can't remember if I had Baby Driver above it or not. But it is, I mean, Denis Villeneuve is such an incredible director. And if anyone were mm-hmm. to take the reins from Ridley Scott, I think it being him was a really mm-hmm. wise choice. Um, that was able to capture the visual elements of the original and improve on it. Like mm-hmm. it has a much more diverse color palette than the original. Mm-hmm. Um, the cinematography is, I mean, the cinematography in the original is fantastic, but in the yeah, new in one is just so striking. I mean, Roger Deakins won his first Oscar for that film after like 17 yeah. nominations. And he's like one of the most talented direct or uh, cinematographers working right now, if mm-hmm. not the definitive most talented. I think Ryan Gosling's performance as K he plays it very dry but again he seems more human than deckard at some points and maybe they're equally human maybe they're equally not i think both movies leave that up to the viewer's interpretation which is something i always appreciated that they didn't definitively answer the questions from the original um i do like the original more because of its influence i think Mm -hmm. and on a story like story-wise i think the simplicity works better but they are both really incredible movies both movies box office wise not great yeah did not do great i think it's okay that the new one underperformed because a it means we're not getting a blade runner 2089 or whatever which is probably good um and b the original underperformed like we mentioned but it has become like a cult classic and even more than that like a uh, filmmakers all consider it one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time and one of the greatest movies of all time and we and he's making doom which is very exciting yeah Denis Villeneuve is and it's a shame he's not on I don't, not, none of us are discussing one of his I don't movies. understand why someone would give him because they go I'm pretty sure they give him a lot of money for dune and I trust me I'm excited but like it's no one's gonna, gonna see no dune. one's gonna see dune no he, he made a joke after Blade Runner 2049 came out because it did well in Europe. He was like, Europe saved my ass. That's funny. Did it really do well? Yeah. It did better than in America. It was like, Europe's the only reason I can make Doom. It had a ridiculous budget. It was like, yeah. yeah. Got it. it looks like it. Yeah. I mean, like, it uses that money well. It was probably $100 million less than Justice League, and Justice League looks like shit, but <laughs> it, it wasn't cheap to make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Ridley Scott, this transitions into my science fiction film, which is The Martian. Based the 2015 movie directed by Ridley Scott, based on the Andy Wire book. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Wire Weir, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, Andy Wire book. I've read the book and the movie, and I do like the book more, but I think the movie is also very well done. And even com- especially compared to Blade Runner, and even compared to Children of Men, I think in all the other picks on our list that you'll hear later, I think it's the most relatable. Like I think it's the most. Like, I could see it happening. Mm-hmm. Like, Blade Runner is kind of like, I don't want to say fantasy at sometimes, but it's not as science as, like, I may like. Well, actually, it's just, but it's just a different breed of science fiction. Mm-hmm. This one, especially in the book and in the movie, you count, you know, every potato he's got, you know, every <laughs> ration, you know, every little detail that you need to know. And 
the whole movie is basically a ticking clock of when you're trying to get, I forget the main character's name, <laughs> Matt Damon. Mark Watney. Yeah, Mark Watney. They're trying to, they're, he gets stuck on Mars and basically the whole movie is an attempt to get him off where the Earth is working together, him working on him, working on his own. And I think it's exciting. Are you Have you ever seen the movie? No, I have not. No. So, I didn't realize you haven't seen yeah. the Martian. Probably would have picked it if <laughs> I knew that. Well, uh, well, even like we were talking about doing our skin, and you haven't seen any of the skin. So. No, I haven't. That's true. Yeah, it's kind of hard. Yeah. So I, I just think it's great. I think it's out of all the movies we picked, it's the most science. It's the most. I feel like you could teach this in a class. Like you yeah. could teach if you're doing a biology class or even like any other type of science class. I feel like this could be a good book to read. I don't know your thoughts on it. I love this movie. Um, I think I have this higher than Force Awakens for my 2015 list. I really... Sometimes I get sick of movies where it's like the conflict is good guy versus bad guy. So that's why I often look for more nuance in that level of conflict. But this one is all of humanity versus nature. And that's always been my favorite part about the movie is that there are characters that you disagree with, but they're not evil. They just think the best way to save mark watney is to do this thing instead than what the other characters that you might agree with think or maybe they recognize that it's not worth saving mark watney because they have a bunch of other astronauts they have to save like that's not inherently a evil thing to think it's just more utilitarian and i just love that notion of humanity coming together to work on this common goal Mm -hmm. of saving one man who's stuck on the red planet just yeah. eating potatoes grown from his <laughs> him and his own uh cruise poop yeah don glover's in it yeah that's cool yeah he like slips in one of the shots and that was an accident yeah. ridley scott kept it in so that's pretty cool yeah. i think one of my favorite scenes in the movie and in the book i don't know this isn't really spoiling anything but uh the chinese government has to decide whether to send a rocket to go either i, I forget either save it either launches to Mars and drops off fuel, or it either launches to their big ship. Yeah, and then they do a they wrap around the Earth and shoot back. Yeah, and so I, that's one of my favorite scenes, like the like Chinese government trying to decide because and them trying to compromise because like we we spent millions upon millions of dollars on uh, a, a rocket ship and we're gonna kind of waste it on. Uh, the Americans messing up, yeah, and so, but then they like compromise and they decide that like a Chinese astronaut would will be the next one sent to Mars along with the American astronauts and like that whole just like like diplomacy diplomacy like the political compromise, yeah right? it's just it's the most really wholesome movie when you think it about is, it yeah and so yeah I think I recommend the book and the movie and yeah it's just. It's pure science at its core, and it's so unlike any other movie for that. Like, it doesn't throw in, like, oh, we need an evil bad guy who has a vendetta against Mark Watney, or Mark Watney's an idiot, and he needs someone to explain it. There's never a moment where it's like, um, explain it in English, please. Yeah. It, like, it trusts its audience to be semi-competent to keep up with a basic story that goes into the details often, but, um, yeah, it's, it's also funny. Like yeah, Matt Damon does a fantastic job playing uh, Mark Watney. He's just he's funny. He's because you kind of got to carry the movie by yourself because you're yeah. alone on a planet by yourself. So his his like 
interactions with himself or <laughs> yeah. like uh who do they curiosity when he finds curiosity i or, don't think it's curiosity it's um pathfinder I pathfinder think? yeah so it's all those uh matt damon does a great job i recommend yeah the book and the movie have enough differences where it's worth reading both of them definitely yeah but uh yeah i would definitely check out both and tom glover's in it so <laughs> ryan ryan doesn't have I too much to do covers yeah <laughs> I have um, have we talked about the theory that so people think that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck didn't really write that much of Goodwill Hunting that like some famous screenwriter came in and fixed it for them and then oh, didn't yeah. take credit for it um so that's why Matt Damon um only takes on roles where he plays a character that's undeserving of what he gets so it's <laughs> oh, like really? yeah he has funny. the whole planet working to save him in the Martian he has what uh, don't spoil it interstellar because i haven't seen it but i know he's in it for some reason it's the exact same thing he has a whole he has a group of people working together to try and save him unnecessarily they have he's he, more of a saving private ryan he has oh, like yeah. a whole troop come yeah. and get, oh, <laughs> oh, i'll spoil funny. saving private ryan but a whole troop comes to save him for well it's the name of the movie so well i wasn't gonna i was gonna spoil what happens to the oh, troop. Okay. <laughs> um yeah and there's some other ones i can't think of right now but he's always playing just the role of like bumbling idiot who doesn't get who doesn't deserve what happens to him i think that's really interesting theory do do they do they have an idea of who wrote good world hunting they do but i can't think of the person oh okay uh so for my second movie i chose uh one of the most emotional films i think i've seen uh and that is eternal sunshine of the spotless mind directed by michael gondry and written by a few like michael gondry and a few people but most notably charlie kaufman who is just a fantastic writer. Mm-hmm. He also did, has done Synecdoche, New York, um, Being John Malkovich, Anomalisa, Adaptation. And um, he is so good at make it, relating to the human experience and not necessarily in a way that makes sense, but definitely in a way that um, is... Uh, very emotionally impactful and very emotionally true too and um that is something like this is probably his one of his more accessible films if just for the fact that like you kind of have an idea of what's going on because in Synecdoche you have no idea what's going on it's so confusing fever dream but it's so sad (laughs) and in this movie it's really emotional but it has this like it has this real life it's very real and grounded, but it has this one twist on it where it's it, for for those of you who don't know, the plot of the movie is about uh, two people starring Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet are the two who um, decide to get the memories of each other erased. And the whole movie takes place in the mind of Jim Carrey as his memories of his of Kate Winslet are being erased. And it is an absolutely breathtaking film and visual uh storytelling the way that it i guess in uh, i guess with these two picks i wanted one movie that reflects society and another movie to reflect human nature mm-hmm. and this movie certainly does that like it's one of the few movies that got me like tearing up a little yeah and um just the characters like the characters are both kind of assholes but you like by the end of it you you feel for them because they're just like they're just like any of us. Yeah. They have their flaws and they have their um, better parts of them. Mm-hmm. 
And, like, there's only, like, five characters in the whole movie. Yeah, there's not a whole lot. Mark Ruffalo and Elijah Wood are in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. The whole supporting cast is fantastic, too. Tom Wilkinson's in it. Uh, Kirsten Dunst is in it. Yeah, I forgot about her. Uh Uh-huh. That's who I was trying to think of. It's just, like, it's it's such an emotional film, I think. I really love the way it chose to tell its story. Like, it kind of tells the end, again, not spoiling things. It tells the end at the beginning. Yeah. And then it kind of starts over. And you get to see what led to the end. And then you come to realize that. It is the end that you were shown. Yeah. Like, you like, don't you, know, you don't realize it at first. Uh-huh. Um, and it's just, it's so lovely. It's such a lovely movie. Um, I don't know. I don't have any other way to describe it. Mark Ruffalo mm-hmm. was asked once, like, what are what do you consider like the five greatest movies ever made? And one of his picks, he was like, I know this is stupid. This is cliche. Cause I was in it, but I do think eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is one of the most beautiful mm-hmm. movies ever written. Um, and I tend to agree with him. It's I'm not big into the romance genre, yeah. but this one really works for me. The way it tells the story of the relationship between, I'm going to pull up the names real quick, uh, Jim Carrey's Joel Barish and Kate Winslet's Clementine. And it tells the story between the two backwards so it starts at the end of their relationship and then it goes to the beginning Mm -hmm. and you really like get to sympathize with the characters because you see their worst parts first yeah and you see why they were happy and what made them so happy at the end and there's a scene it's the last it's when the last memory of her is being erased by jim carrey's mind and it is just like heart-wrenching for me it is and it um it's not a film worried about practicality. It just wants to show you the emotion of the scenes mm-hmm. and how it makes you feel. And that is the most important thing about storytelling in a movie to me, is how do you visually tell the story instead of just hitting certain plot beats because you have to? You know, it's just, it's incredible. And it's visual in the way that it tells the story visually. So this is another choice where the elements of it, the sci-fi elements are kind of smaller. Like first mm-hmm. and foremost, I'd say it's a love story, yeah. but the movie wouldn't work without the sci-fi elements. Why yeah. do you think it is one of the greatest sci-fi movies I've ever, ever made, if not the greatest? Because I think that it helps. Uh, Charlie Kaufman, in an interview I saw, he said that um, he believes that um, romance movies lies to him when he was younger and he wanted to tell a very realistic love story and a very realistic story of a relationship Mm -hmm. and with this like sci-fi twist on it um and i think the sci-fi twist just shows off how much uh how much people affect our lives and how much relationships the relationships we have with people affect our lives and what effects that would have if it was gone and I think it's just like using the sci-fi elements, it's able to take a deep dive into what human relationships and love truly means. And uh, like no other, I've never seen any other film do it to this extent. And I think that it's very necessary to tell a story. So maybe it's not the most um, science fiction story, but it sets up a world, it sets up an idea, and it executes it very well. Mm-hmm. And that idea just so happens to be science fiction related. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why I think that this is a very strong science fiction movie. But not as strong as my second choice. <laughs> um, someone had to pick it. You know it was coming. 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I can say Iron Man 2. Directed by the... Star Wars and Marvel, doesn't it? Directed by the much overrated Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> I want to preface this by saying that Stanley Kubrick is my favorite director. I'm going to so. preface that by saying that I hate Stanley Kubrick. I'm going to preface that mm. by saying I don't hate Stanley Kubrick, but The Shining is the only movie I can rewatch this. I don't think we're going to say the word preface before, <laughs> yeah. but whatever. <laughs> um, most of you are probably familiar with this, but just to do a quick summary, um, this is from Wikipedia. The film, which follows a voyage to Jupiter with the sentient computer HAL after the discovery of a mysterious black monolith affecting human evolution, deals with themes of existentialism, human evolution, technology, artificial intelligence, and the possibility of extraterrestrial life. So you basically just hit every element of a sci-fi movie right there. This movie, even more than Blade Runner, it kills me to say it because I think I'd like Bla- I like Blade Runner more than this movie. Um, this movie is the most influential movie when it comes to sci-fi. The it could be the most influential movie, period. Yeah. Yeah. It is the sci-fi movie. When I think of sci-fi. It is the quintessential sci-fi movie. When you think of the themes, like we just talked about, it plays on every single theme you see in a sci-fi movie. When you think of the kind of classical score, you see that a lot in sci-fi movies nowadays. Um, it's all soundtrack, too. None of it was written for the movie. True, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I remember... I didn't know that, really. Yeah. What it was is Stanley Kubrick was like, these are the songs I used as like in my brain to imagine what the shots would look like. And then the person who was going to compose a uh, original score was like, these will work fine. And then you have the... I don't know the name of the song, but the one is... Um, uh, yeah, I Moon it, Rises. I don't know. The Earth in the background. I don't know it off the top of my head. This film... It's more so like a bunch of little vignettes. So without spoiling it, you have the opening with the apes... You have some more with um, astronauts discovering the monolith on Jupiter, it says. And then you have all the stuff with Hal that I think everyone thinks of when they see this movie. And then you have, of course, the ending, which is, we won't go into here, but is, you could write hundreds of books on it, you know? What's it? What's the ending called? There's, there's a name specific, for the yeah, there's a name for the ending. Really, I didn't know that. Uh, I don't remember what it's called because oh, the uh, they call it the Stargate sequence. Stargate sequence on on, M- on IMDb they call it the Stargate sequence. But the funny thing is, the movie was underperforming a lot mm-hmm. in the theaters, and uh, they were gonna shut it down. But then they um, realized that a lot of teenagers were going in and doing LSD. Yeah. During the Stargate sequence, so they kept it in theaters. And it ended up being the highest grossing movie of 1968. Is that true? Yeah, I'm pretty oh sure. Oh my god. Um, and then just to go into a little bit more of how it was received back then, it was nominated for four Oscars, winning Best Effects slash Special Visual Effects. Um, I believe that's Stanley Kubrick's only Oscar, which is kind of crazy. But so um, if it were to go to one of his movies, it makes sense that it's this one. Is that true? Really? Yeah. Damn. It made uh, $58 million unadjusted, which is a lot back then. We're talking late 60s it was mixed there were people that were walking out saying it was a very indulgent movie um a lot is a lot of critics did not like it a lot of critics did love it at the time and recognized what stanley kubrick was going for i think stanley kubrick with this film is more so going for an experience than an actual movie 
So I think if you go into this film um, hoping to analyze the story and pick apart the character actions and what it exactly is trying to say about humanity, you're missing the point of the movie. Mm -hmm. The point is to watch it and just listen to your emotions and your intuition and just feel what this this movie is trying to show you. It does all this with very minimal dialogue. I think the Mm -hmm. first 40 minutes has no dialogue and the last like like 30 doesn't have any dialogue. Um, there's probably an hour of film like of a yeah. narrative not film that, that would, that's, rude to say. <laughs> that's rude to say but a, a narrative there's probably an hour of a narrative yeah and, then, mm-hmm. and um, I mean speaking about the no dialogue ape sequence at the beginning I think the cut of the ape throwing up the bone after he used it to kill someone kill another right. ape I believe and then that transitioning into a spaceship is genuinely the best cut of all time we haven't seen Lawrence in a year we haven't because the other one that people always say is the match. Yeah. Oh, the match. Yeah. yeah, but I don't understand the context that that exists in. But I have seen the cut, and I think I put the bone ahead of it. Um, I think Kubrick is a complete genius. Mm-hmm. I think there is no one who has mastered the craft of filmmaking to the same level that he did because he was a photographer beforehand. Yeah. So he truly understood how to capture a frame. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people like people love him so much that there are entire documentaries about how many layers are in his film, which is funny because his productions were very slapdash. <laughs> he was like in The Shining. He had um, given out a script every day. It was a different script. Yeah, I remember they were still revising it. And um, 2001 is probably his greatest film achievement of all time. Yeah. And um you know, there might be films I prefer, like I might prefer to watch The Shining, mm-hmm. but uh, 2001 is the best Kubrick film. Yeah, it's definitely my favorite Kubrick film, and uh, that's saying something, because I thought it was boring as hell, <laughs> <laughs> but it is so, visu- it's probably the most visually stunning film, and the only one that can compare to that is probably Blade Runner and or Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's just, like, every second I was like, wow, this looks great, but... Then I was bored. <laughs> but other than that, I, yeah, I think it's a, uh, I don't think we will ever see anything like it again. And, uh, but we also see everything that is kind of like it. It's like this weird, like, mm-hmm. yeah. a lot of films, every, almost every film that is in space yeah. is inspired by, like, after 2001 was released, Kubrick destroyed all the props <laughs> so no one else could use them. In lesser films, because he was kind of an <laughs> asshole. Yeah. But he is just, I he I come think he's a complete genius. And how well do all the visuals hold up? Like, this came oh, out yeah, yeah, before absolutely. Star Wars, before Alien, before Blade mm-hmm. Runner. This was 14 years before Blade Runner, and it I looks know. just as good. Yeah. It looks just as good as movies we see today. Mm-hmm. It is really remarkable what he was able to capture mm-hmm. at this time period with this set of constrictions and like all good sci-fi it gives me this existential feeling of dread throughout the yeah, whole movie it like, is, oh, so all these films are kind of horrifying yeah except for maybe dr strangelove which small enough should be the most horrifying yeah i think that he this film is his definitive statement that he left his mark on filmmaking as an art form yes i think he is so responsible for so much of the reason that we view film, that I view film in the way that I do. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, have you ever heard of his um, Napoleon movie? Yes. That he always wanted to make? You can talk about it. But... Yeah. So he always wanted to make uh, a true historian film about Napoleon Bonaparte. And uh, he never got the opportunity. He wanted to make it after Space Odyssey. But he never got the opportunity to because they had spent $12 million and it went over budget. And the uh, person who, I think the person who ran the studio had to resign because of it, because of 2001. Oh my gosh. Or something along those lines. And so they wanted him to just do a small movie with a small budget. And so he did Clockwork Orange. And uh, which is funny because it's also like one of his most famous movies. I love Clockwork Orange Mm -hmm. as well. But um, he always wanted to make a Napoleon film, and he has multiple screenplays revised for it. And he asked um, who the person who wrote Clockwork uh, uh, Orange, I'm blanking on his name. But he uh, he asked him to make the book so that maybe because it was a book, they could make a movie of it after. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book came out, and Kubrick didn't think he could make a movie out of it. <laughs> yeah. but Anthony Burgess? Anthony Burgess, yeah. He was just a complete genius. And I know this is your film, and now I'm just going on a rant <laughs> about Kubrick. No, because, I mean, I joke um, uh, about Kubrick. I do think his impact on film is remarkable and unparalleled. Very few left the mark he was able to. Um, but I do put other directors above him in terms of uh, how much I appreciate their work and their rewatchability and how much it has left an impact on my film viewing experience. I put, like, Spielberg and um, Hitchcock above him. Yeah. So, but I I do think 2001 and The Shining and Clockwork Orange had an incredible impact on film. And if you had to pick one of them, if you had to pick one sci-fi movie or if you had to pick one Kubrick, it would be 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, to follow that, I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. (laughs) So, the modern science fiction that we know was born out of Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, in 1818, in my humble opinion. He's been waiting to say this for weeks. <laughs> and so, what Mary Shelley's Frankenstein does best is obviously the horror. Like, it's it, it's the birth of both horror and science fiction. Like, especially modern horror and science fiction. Definitely. There's a lot of stuff before that. But, uh, and so, but we haven't chosen any horror movies. And I think the strongest science fiction movie in probably my favorite horror movie of all time is the thing the 1982 john carpenter movie that i think is a is it a remake or a retelling of a it's a remake of the thing from another world or whatever it's called yeah the it's the 50s one is not okay so if you don't know the plot of the movie it is uh has kurt russell and keith david and a bunch of other dudes (laughs) (laughs) and uh it's uh, scientists in the Antarctic are confronted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearances of people it kills. Now, that's the most bare-bone plot I can give you without just going into, like... Because there's a... It's a pretty thin plot, but it's just, like, this horror... It's definitely an experience when you watch the film. And it makes every horror movie and every science fiction movie I watch, I think, lesser. <laughs> because the use of practical effects, the use of framing in the movie the use of the acting's great the dialogue's great it is a tense film it is a like a thriller at times it is it is very exciting to watch and i just watched it not too long ago and uh, mm-hmm. it really changed my view of film in general i shouldn't say this because 
because it's your movie. Yeah. But there, there are movies I like, but I can see the flaws in them. Yeah. Last Jedi. <laughs> and then there are movies that I genuinely think are basically flawless. And I think yeah. this is a flawless entry in not only the horror genre, but also in sci-fi. What it was able to do in terms of directing, I mean, John Carpenter, it's the same thing in terms of horror with Halloween four years prior. Like, he had that small budget and he was able to make something that has lasted 40 years and we're still seeing entries get re-entered into that franchise. The Michael Myers mask is just a reversed uh, Captain Kirk mask. Yeah, yeah. So that's how cheap the movie is. (laughs) But then with this film, you have the the Cronenberg kind of horror of the monsters that we see, but also the psychological horror of this could literally be anyone. It could be our main oh, character yeah. the whole time. Mm-hmm. And what's scary, like, I was thinking about, I was like, do you know it's you? Like, do you, because the thing kind of, like, assumes your personality and just becomes you. And, like, that's so horrifying yeah. that it's, like, you're dead, but you're really not. Like, it's just, like, weird thing. I think it's impersonating you. Yeah. Yeah. But then, like, I don't know. It's just... Oh, it's so, so it's so it's, creepy. Yeah, yeah, but they always look shocked when they become the monster too. True. Yeah. yeah oh, it's, it's so scary. Oh, it's horrifying. And uh, I don't know if you know this. We talked about Blade Runner, but this came out the same weekend as Blade Runner, and both oh. flopped. Both. Uh, wait. Really? <sighs> yeah. No, I'm like that's crazy. Oh yeah, you're right. They both flopped, that and uh, which is <laughs> insane. But they become cult classics that are so important to science fiction. And uh, we picked a lot of movies that flopped. Children of Men flopped. Because I don't think people like science fiction movies. So yeah. No, me neither. And uh, so I, I, yeah, you should check it out. I don't think it's on anything. I think we bought it when we saw it. No, I think it was on Stars. Oh, yeah, but who has Stars? Come on, that's true. <laughs> but it's just, uh, it's I as someone who hates horror, like I, every time Clayton and Ryan are like, "Oh, let's go see this horror movie. It's doing well." I'm like, I either because I get scared. I think a lot of time I think it's cheap. Like I think a lot of the scares are cheap and unfulfilling, and. Uh, I just, I just don't like what modern horror has become. I was so happy to see a film, and also refreshed to see a film that genuinely horrified me, but also interested me so much. There was a brand of horror that I think was really popular in the seventies and eighties <coughs> that I wish was still around, and that's like this movie and The Fly and all these like really grotesque. Oh, it's like the John Carpenter, yeah, the John Carpenter and Cronenberg uh, and paranoia uh, of these like mangled monsters yeah. and it's 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 fantastic i mean like this year i feel like now it's split between bad teenage bait horror films yeah and art house films yeah because this year had suspiria but, which was fantastic and hereditary which was even better <laughs> yeah, nothing has a monster anymore and i no. think yeah. the thing is such a it's weird because it's like it's so recognizable but it's so unrecognizable because shape-shifting so mm-hmm. it's such a such an interesting and like unique villain in a movie. What was the last movie monster similar to the thing? Dracula Untold. <laughs> the Mummy? I don't know. The it mummy. depends on what you classify as movie monster. Yeah, but uh, like, what's one you'll see that's recognizable? Yeah, recognizable. I guess I don't know. You can't do the the slashers count like Michael Myers. And... Yeah, I'm. Well, I don't want it to be just like a human in a mask. Yeah, I don't know. I can't think of anything because it was bad. Freddy Krueger is kind of a monster, and yeah. that was. After this movie, he's just a human who raped some kids and got burned. (laughs) Yeah, just that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Just because you mentioned um, that Blade Runner and The Thing both came out in 1982. 1982 was actually kind of a crazy movie for movies. So just listen to some of the ones that came out. Crazy year for movies. What did I? Crazy movie for movies. (laughs) 
1982 <laughs> was actually a crazy year for movies. Let me just run through some of the ones that came out. We have Blade Runner, The Thing, Poltergeist, E.T., Tootsie, <laughs> Sophie's Choice, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Did you just skip a Rocky? Uh, a Air- Rocky. Airplane. Rocky III. Uh, yeah, Rocky oh, okay. Three. We can skip that one. <laughs> Gandhi. Oh, my God. Gandhi's that old. <laughs> no, but this was just a really strong year. Tron. And there was a weekend where you could see Blade Runner, The Thing, Tron, and E.T. were all in theaters. And Poltergeist, I think. And, Isn't that crazy? And the only one that didn't flop was E.T. And that became the highest grossing movie of all time at that point. Really? Yeah. Oh, it wasn't until Jurassic Park, which was another Spielberg, That'd obviously. Be a good, would that count as sci-fi, E.T.? That's in my honorable mentions. Oh, we gotta get to those. Which, if you're set with all... If you're set with um, The well, Thing... Yeah, just watch mm-hmm. The Thing. There's a 2011 retelling. It's it's technically prequel. Cool. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I haven't seen it. Uh... I would stick away from it from what I've heard is that it's not very... The Thing exactly. The thing is fantastic. Probably one of the best remakes ever made. Definitely. And, uh, this became more of a discussion than a debate. Yeah. But that's fine. Well, maybe but we can... We decided the thing is the best, so... Well, we'll we see. Maybe we yeah. can decide after this, but I do want to mention some honorable mentions and kind of why they weren't chosen. Um, Alien and Aliens um, were clearly omitted. Honestly, we're saving those for other podcasts. We want to do a horror and an action one, and Alien and Aliens would go to those, respectively. And you'll just probably talk about the thing again. Yeah, I'll just keep talking about the thing. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, we can keep talking about the thing. Um, Star Wars is obviously sci-fi, mm. but we did a whole podcast on that. Inception. Fancy, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Inception, does, it doesn't feel like sci-fi to me, also. It's very grounded. Yeah. I, I love Inception. It's one of my favorite movies, but it's... Uh... Which is weird. It's like a... Yeah. Yeah. It's very weird well, uh, it's because Christopher Nolan. I don't know. No Christopher Nolan film feels like sci-fi. Maybe it's his style. Yeah. Maybe it's his tone. Yeah, probably his tone. Yeah. How grounded it is. Because I think sci-fi. Is, a big part of sci-fi is tone. The way sh- the way films movies mm-hmm. just doesn't seem mm-hmm. science fiction. Movie. It doesn't seem too fantastical. No. Um. And then we have the Terminator and specifically T two Judgment mm-hmm. Day. Um. We've all seen those movies, but it's been a really long mm-hmm. time, so yeah. I don't think it would have been fair for oh, us. Also, that's an action movie. Yeah. Like that could be. And yeah. We could. We do T two for. I don't think any of us are that huge of fans of the uh, I saw it very young. Though. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we saw him young. Um, the Matrix. Uh, Ryan, I don't believe you've seen no, this. I, I mean, me and Ethan have seen it, and we actually don't like it that <laughs> <No>. much. <laughs> so we don't. We didn't pick that because we don't like it. Um, it's just uh, it's kind of boring, mm. and it's I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things ridiculous. where yeah, everything was done after the Matrix, so we've seen it a hundred times. Yeah, but I, I'm not crazy about it. E. T. I really, really love that movie. We haven't, I haven't seen it in years. Yeah, I watched it recently, and um, oh, I love it so much. But I do like 2001 and Blade Runner more. Um, Arrival. Oh, Arrival's fantastic. Just more Denis Villeneuve films. Honestly. The Planet of the Apes movies, I feel like, could be on that yeah. list. Because yep. I think War and Dawn are very, just great, like, weirdly unique science fiction movies. Under the Skin, as well, mm-hmm. is That's just... Yeah. It's probably the, one of the most horrifying films. Probably my second favorite ever. horror movie behind The Thing, maybe. Yeah. Really? Oh, it The is Thing's like... So... Favorite horror movie. It is wow. so good and, like, creepy as hell. There's, like, very little dialogue. And even if there is dialogue, you can't hear them because they have such a thick accent. <laughs> um, and then Jurassic Park. I love this movie, but I, I throw it more under adventure than sci-fi. Me too. Yeah. I wouldn't think uh-huh. of it as about sci-fi. Uh, Back to the Future, which is I've loved when I watched it, but again, none of us have seen it in a really long time, unfortunately. I've seen it. I've seen it. Kind you of watched recently. it recently? Yeah. 
We'll like two or three years. But I remember think? it very well. I love yeah, it. I've seen it recently that was too. Oh, it's good. It's just I'm not. I'm not a, I like. I like it a lot. But it's like. I don't, I don't think of it's it like as a perfect. I don't think of it as sci-fi either. I put it in like this the Spiel, I know it wasn't Spielberg, but I put it in the Spielberg camp where this is like fantastical Adventure. whimsy to it. Yeah. yeah. Fancy. Um Gattaga is I think that's one none of us have seen. That kept yeah. popping up on lists. Um Star Trek again. None of us are big Star Trek fans, but it feels like you have to mention it. And then her. Oh my god, her. Her is so good. Why don't we why don't we just talk about her? do a podcast on her? Let's just start over and just talk about yeah. her. <laughs> That's an incredible movie. You um, haven't seen her. No. You haven't? Oh, it's so good. It you is. probably wouldn't like it. It is. Why? Because, I don't know. Is it like, is it about it feelings? It is probably <laughs> the <laughs> most realistic film of all the science fiction films we brought today. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Honestly, more realistic than Eternal. I think I'm trying it's more to. Realistic than... It's more realistic than The Martian. No. Maybe. Maybe at this point it is. People will fall in love with their phones. Yeah. Yeah. Are you speaking from experience? Well, what other honorable mentions do you have? That's all I had. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so those are some honorable mentions that we left out either because we haven't seen it in a while or we just aren't fans of them or we're saving them. But based on the six we did bring, do you guys have any answers as to what is the best sci-fi movie of all time? I think there's three top contenders. Thor. Thor 2. <laughs> Iron Man 2. Iron, Iron Man 2. 2. No, I think uh, Blade Runner 1, Space Odyssey, and uh, The Thing. All right, thank you. I just, I just <laughs> don't think Eternal Sunshine or Children of Men embody what like when I when I think of science fiction film, I, those aren't on my top. Yeah, that does, that's fair. That's not I do think it. I do think of those films. I, think, I mean, I think they're great movies because they're like my know. favorite movies. Though I don't know if that's something to do with the genre or not. I'm good with narrowing down to the top three. Um, I love the thing, and it's probably top three favorite horror for me. I really love The Shining and Alien, but um, the thing's right up there. And it'd be too hard for me to rank them. Um, and even though I like Blade Runner more, I feel like 2001 is science fiction. Yeah. I think 2001, I think we can all agree 2001 is the like most definitive sci-fi film, right? Ethan doesn't seem Ethan to agree. Doesn't. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's hard because they're such different movies. They are. They're mm-hmm. both science fiction. Science fiction is such a broad genre. So I think mm-hmm. I, I, I can see the argument that the thing is more horror than it is science fiction. And... I can get behind that in say space odyssey is the most definitive science fiction movie of all time. Science fiction is easily my favorite genre. I don't think that there's any genre that even comes close to it. Because it's kind of an umbrella term. It is too. Because it can include like you have a sci fi romance film like Cloud Atlas. All Marvel sci-fi. movies are sci fi. All Marvel movies yeah. are sci fi. You could have um but I think sci fi in the true there is a form of sci fi in the truest form. That is different from the Marvel movies because we wouldn't call the oh, Marvel yeah, movies sci-fi. Yeah. And I think that like sci-fi is the most narratively interesting to me anyways. And it has the ability to explore worlds and ideas that other um, genres might not be able to because it has the luxury of not being real, not being as real as some other genres. Totally. And it can completely distort our worldview. And um, I really love that about it. Sci-fi is the only genre where you can tell a compelling love story. You can have one of the most horrifying body horror movies, psychological horror movies that's out there, that you can tell a story of a kid finding an alien in E.T. It's the most blanket genre. And because of that, you can really tell any story you want in a really compelling way. And I Mm -hmm. think that's why 
we all consider sci-fi one of our favorite genres, yeah. if not our favorite genre. Yeah. On that note, I think we decided 2001, A Space Odyssey, is the greatest sci-fi movie of all time. Um, but Children of Men is the greatest movie of all time. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Because Children of Men, Iron Man 2. Thor. <laughs> Spider-Man 2. Well, Thor 2, we decided was better than Thor 1 in the Marvel podcast. That's right. So, keep up. <laughs> uh, but on that note, I'm Clayton Terry. I'm Ryan Terry. I'm Ethan Terry. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to Ted Ryan for our podcast art. And thanks for thanks to Anchor for making this podcast possible. We will catch you next time. Have an extraterrestrial day. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs>